Welcome to BIV Today, the daily business news podcast from the Business in Vancouver newspaper and BIV.com. I'm Kirk LaPointe. I'm Tyler Orton. Are Canada's changing demographics responsible for a downward shift in the country's entrepreneurialism? That's the argument being made in a new book from the Fraser Institute, Demographics and Entrepreneurship, Mitigating the Effects of an Aging Population. The book's coordinating editor, Jason Clemens, he joins us to discuss why fewer small businesses are being launched as our population ages. And later on, we're going to examine the way machine learning is changing how we consume entertainment. Mashup Machine co-founder Chris Schoenholm is going to discuss how his startup is using AI to fuse movie creation with gaming. But first, here's the Fraser Institute's Jason Clements. Are changing demographics responsible for a decades-long decline in entrepreneurship throughout Canada and other parts of the world? As our population has aged, we've seen declines of nearly 50% in the emergence of small business startups. This is according to a new book from the Fraser Institute. Joining us today is the coordinating editor of Demographics and Entrepreneurship, Mitigating the Effects of an Aging Population. I'd like to welcome to the show Jason Clemens. He's Executive Vice President at the Fraser Institute. Jason, thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you. So the book, it, it argues that the population that's best positioned to be entrepreneurs, those that are in their late 20s, their early 40s, the population's declining, and with that comes fewer small businesses. Tell me a little bit about what happens if we do see the decline of entrepreneurship within an economy. Sure. So I think there's broad agreement about the importance of entrepreneurship in terms of improving existing goods and services, figuring out new and better ways to do what we're already doing, and equally, if not more important, um, discovering new products, new services, uh, new things uh, for our, our, or in our economy. And so if that critical role, which has just been central in the progression of our economy over the last 100 plus years, if that role is diminished, then we shouldn't be surprised to see a slowing in the growth of our living standards, a slowing of the growth in our economy, and generally a slowing in the growth of our prosperity, which, by the way, is generally what we're seeing across many industrialized countries, that we're no longer aspiring to 35 or 4% growth in our economy. We're now aspiring to 2% growth in our economy. Um, so I think in general, that is agreed upon by economists, analysts, who, folks who look at these issues uh, day in, day out. The, the one, one of many things that I think is ignored when we start talking about entrepreneurship is this role of demographics, which is really what motivated uh, this project. Yeah. So tell us a bit about the relationship here, the, the causation even of uh, demography on uh, the entrepreneurial nature of our society. Sure. So it, there's a couple things, and, and those who are interested should really read Russ Sobel's chapter in our book. Uh, it's a, a very clear uh, discussion of this effect. But essentially, the idea is that there's a sweet spot for entrepreneurship where you get this combination between people who are still willing to take risks, which is key, right? Because if you're 55 and you have family obligations and you're looking down the path or looking down the road to retirement, you're just less predisposed to take on big entrepreneurial risks than if you're 30 years old and you don't have those responsibilities. And so, it, again, it's this combination of A, you're willing to take on these risks, and B, you actually have some life and business experience 
um, and professional experience and business skills that will allow you to actually execute on your entrepreneurial idea. And so that age group, uh, the data I think is fairly clear, is just key to entrepreneurship. And as the population ages, that share of the population between late 20s and early 40s is shrinking. And so we've gone from, if you go back 30 years, you had a bulge of people in that age group, the baby boomers. Now as the baby boomers are aging and our population more generally is aging, that group of people, again, the key or the sweet spot, as some have uh, referred to it for entrepreneurship, is shrinking. And and that's why uh, the folks who are involved in the project uh, that we released this morning uh, are pretty convinced that demographics is one of the explanations for why we see a decline in business startups, which we believe is a good measure of entrepreneurship, not only in Canada, but across almost all industrialized countries. Is it just that fear um, of risk? that you think is attached to people in their later years? I mean, why wouldn't they, for instance, also think that their own experience, that their savvy, that their wisdom somehow positions them better to be entrepreneurs? Why not there? Yeah, I, I certainly, I wouldn't disagree with that. I think it's more to do with the risk. And so if we think, let's just think about the loss of financial capital. So if you're 30 years old, you put some of your money in, you get some friends and some investors and you put the money in and the business doesn't work out, you have lots of time to make that up. If you're 55 or 60 and you put half your wealth into a business, again, a new business, and you raise capital from friends who may be similar age and get some investors and it doesn't work out, you have much less time, if any time, to make that up when you're looking at your retirement kind of finish line, so to speak. And so I think that's one aspect of risk. I think another aspect of risk is as people uh, move, particularly mid-40s and above, they tend to have much larger family responsibilities in terms of children who are responsible for their well-being, their education, um, trying to save for retirement. <clears throat> and so these risks at the margin again, are adding to a reduction in the proclivity or a reduction in the interest of people who are basically over mid-40s in taking on those entrepreneurial risks. Now, again, that doesn't mean we don't have exceptions. It, it, it means the tendency, though, for entrepreneurs to be successful in terms of taking on the risks and having the skills to execute, the sweet spot for that, again, is kind of late 20s to early 40s, roughly. Well, the book is arguing that there's very little that the government can do to halt the aging issue that we're facing right now. So what would you recommend for policymakers if we kind of want to reverse this trend that's going on? You need like grants to old people to set up businesses? Well, or just think about the uh, fact that there's that risk factor. And if you have half of your retirement savings gone, as Jason was saying, you know, I, I think that is pushing back against people. So I do wonder if maybe some sort of granting program would work. I bet, I don't know, Jason, from, from your perspective, what would be the smart thing to do? Right. So uh, the, the book has uh, 10 essays. So three of them are aimed at explaining the problem, uh, the nature of the demographic effect on entrepreneurship and the decline in entrepreneurship. The other seven are all about what countries can do and it really about it's really about two things so one is improve the incentives that entrepreneurials or would-be entrepreneurials face so that you not only get more entrepreneurs but you likely get better entrepreneurs 
And then the second aspect is improve the environment within which they work. So make it easier for them to raise financial capital, make it less onerous for them to run and expand a business. Mm-hmm. Um, now, s- some of the policies that we talk about are more applicable in the U.S. or the U.K. or Australia, and vice versa. Some are more applicable in Canada. So um, of the seven areas that we talked about or, or different authors talked about, um, one was business and personal income tax rates. Clearly, Canada has a problem on personal income tax rates. Uh, it's a huge disincentive to start your own business when you're looking at when you're looking at the kind of tax rates that we would impose on successful entrepreneurs. Uh, the second thing is capital gains. Uh, ca- Canada's capital gains rate is well above the OECD average. Uh, there are now a number of countries who have lowered their capital gains rate, and in, me- in several cases, they've just eliminated it. <clears throat> so, capital gains would be another issue, uh, clearly for Canada. Uh, a third issue uh, for Canada and the United States, uh, although interestingly, the United States is making fairly large changes over the last year, is on the regulations that businesses face, both in terms of starting a business, but then operating the business and trying to grow it. Um, now, there are a number of other issues. Uh, one author, for example, talked about improving the networks between universities uh, potential entrepreneurs and potential financiers. Hmm. Um, I think that's tougher in the Canadian context because our university system is dominated by public universities rather than private universities. Uh, and much of the success of these networking initiatives in the U.S. are with private universities. Uh, but it is still something to think about. Um, we cert- another author talked about uh, changes in immigration. Uh, and then one of the Canadian authors talked about uh, increasing access to financial capital yeah. and different ways that we can change regulations to make it easier for small business to raise the funds they need both to start their business and to expand their business. So, again, I think there's a wide spectrum of things we can do. Uh, some are more applicable to Canada and some are more applicable to some of the other countries that were involved in this this study. I wonder, too, whether and, – and- and I've certainly thought about this over the years in, in contemplating starting a business, and I've just never done it. But one of the things that I think I would have, which is really a common fear as I age, is that, um, is that I have to put everything that I've built up against my, uh, my risk here, my investment. So I have to put my house. I have to, I have to probably put my, uh, I, I can't really borrow against RSPs, but I can, you know, whatever tangible assets I have, are at risk. Are, do we have to think a little differently about this in, in the time ahead because we're going to have such a large part of our population of this age where uh, we have to think about what it is that they need to uh, to have protected as they take this risk in a different way? Uh, well, per- potentially, but I, I would approach it in a different way, which is we are in... I mean, I can't, let me put it this way. I can't think of another time in the history of kind of modern Canadian society or even in modern industrial society when we have this amount of savings available. Yeah. Uh, the last time uh, that would even come anywhere close would be in the 1920s where we have this large amount of savings. Now, the issue for me that I'm interested in is not how do we incentivize people who are older to start a business. It's more about how do we create incentives or improve the existing arrangements for those people to provide risk capital to entrepreneurs. I see. Now, part of that is a cap gains tax rate. 
where we have a lock-in effect, right, where people are sitting on huge amounts of capital appreciation, and there is just a very strong incentive for them to keep it there. Because if they sell that asset and they, and they incur a huge capital appreciation, they have to immediately pay tax on it, even if they want to reinvest it in something else. Uh, similarly, people who are very successful and are looking at making investments, they're looking at their marginal tax rate. In seven of the 10 provinces, that marginal tax rate is over 50%. Uh, and so what are the th- and sorry, we also have pretty strict guidelines on finance, uh, on banking and finance. And so what are the things that we can do to make it easier for us to get the savings from people who might say, look, I'm willing to t- put even if I'm 60 years old, I'm willing to put two percent of my savings into a risk pool that's linked to or is dedicated to starting uh, or providing finances for people to start new businesses. I, I think that. And again, one of the chapters deals with these kinds of issues about linking the people who have savings with the people who need savings in the form of investment to start or grow their business. Wow. So approach it that way. And in that way, again, um, it's it's as if, too, that there is an older demographic that is uh, that has locked down its assets, as you put it, um, that isn't without its interest in initiative in trying to grow the economy and trying to make the economy largely make it a more sustainable economy for their children and grandchildren. But you, you think that it's just that we have this combination of regulatory, uh, and policy lockdown on, uh, on, on assets that are readily available. I think that's part of it. I think another really important chapter in our book, although obviously I have a bias since we worked on it, but there's another really important chapter by a wonderful economist, Deirdre McCloskey, and her colleague, Art Carden, uh, talking about social values, culture, um, how we talk about success. And I think one of the problems in Canada and the United States is that we are becoming very risk averse, that uh-huh. we, we that through public policy, governments want to protect people against taking risks. And the problem is it is inherently risky to start a business. It's inherently risky to invest in a new business. And so the more that we regulate to try to protect people against those risks, the less of that activity we're going to get because we've actually put up barriers to those activities. So, you know, if any of your listeners have have tried to uh, start a small business, they will know the, the incredible hoops that they have to go through to try to raise capital to build their business. And most of those hoops are regulatory. That, In other words, we have made a decision through government policy to put in those encumbrances and those barriers to getting savings from those people who have savings to the people who need investment dollars. So again, I think there's a, a number of policy levers that we can use to improve the entrepreneurial climate, which will help us not only get potentially more entrepreneurs, but also better entrepreneurs. I mean, you mentioned these levers, but I also wonder if there's almost a generational thing that's going on here because the people that would be in their prime years for starting businesses, they grew up, uh, they they had their formative years during the Great Recession. And we're finding a lot of uh, credit card companies, for example, they're having problems attracting younger generations. They don't want to, the millennials don't want to be with, say, credit cards. I wonder how much that seeps into their willingness to, you know, take out uh, capital from different banks, lenders, what have you. Is there a bit of a generational thing that we're going to have to adjust to somehow? 
potentially. I, I actually look at the generational issue slightly differently, though, that, that the generation coming up that is on the cusp of entering that sweet spot that we, that we talked about previously, um, they are clearly interested in uh, Internet uh, application use, sharing economy, new economy, which is fantastic, lots of opportunities. However, that space within our larger economy is quite small. And so even if we have a younger generation coming up that is more open to starting a business, more open to thinking innovatively, what we have to stand back from a policy perspective and think about is the number of sectors of our economy that are fairly closed to that kind of innovation and entrepreneurship. And I'll, I'll just give you two easy examples. One is inevitably our healthcare system is going to grow as a share of our economy as our population ages. It is very difficult to be entrepreneurial within the healthcare space because it's so heavily regulated uh, by the federal and provincial governments. Uh, and indeed, provision within the healthcare system, it's over 65% provided by government. So there's just limited space for those young, entrepreneurial, innovative people to think about how can we do healthcare better or differently. Uh, the second area, which actually is within the sharing economy, is governments, particularly local, are increasingly regulating the sharing economy, which limits the space for people to be entrepreneurial within it. So for example, uh, in Metro Vancouver, we don't even have Uber because of municipal regulation. Um, certainly there's increasing regulation on Airbnb, and so those increasing regulations within the sharing economy are in and of themselves limiting entrepreneurship in a space that I think most people anticipated a fairly high level of entrepreneurship. So I think part of what we wanna think about is how do we again remove those barriers to allow people to be more entrepreneurial in a broader part of, or sorry, a broader spectrum of the economy. Uh, and again, right now there's just so many areas of our economy that are fairly closed uh, to entrepreneurship. Well, Jason, I want to thank you for joining us on the program. And for anyone who's interested, the name of that book, again, is Demographics and Entrepreneurship, Mitigating the Effects of an Aging Population. Jason, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. That's Jason Clemens. He's the Executive Vice President of the Fraser Institute. Well, we've seen the second screen phenomenon become more ubiquitous as people live tweet their viewing experiences during their favorite TV shows. So if some viewers aren't really satisfied with sitting back and passively consuming content, can artificial intelligence be used to make these viewing experiences even more interactive? Vancouver-based startup Mashup Machine Incorporated, it's using machine learning to combine gaming with movie creation for these animated shorts, and it's using data it collects to help develop its own stories. With us today is Chris Shoholm. He is the co-founder and chief operating officer of Mashup Machine. Chris, thanks for joining us on the show. Oh, fantastic. What, what are you trying to here. turn couch potatoes into here? <laughs> active participants. Active participants. I like that. And and. How active? Like what's well, what's the activity you're seeking? In gaming, you know, no one ever thinks of themselves as a creator, right? You just play the game, you're given an experience, but each playthrough is a unique experience, a unique story that you've mm. weaved yourself. And we think it's time for normal linear storytelling to take on a similar form, right? So, Allow the audience to sort of blur the line between a creator and a consumer. 
And mm. how are you using your platform here? Because you're using artificial intelligence. You're looking at data that's coming through. How does it work exactly with regards to kind of melding all these different, I guess, formats that are becoming so popular now? So, so, so we're looking at computer-generated cartoons, right? Animated stories. Uh, and there are no data sets that describe story that you can actually turn into something, you know, to turn into an experience, right? So we've had to create our own data sets. We do that by uh, creating the Lego pieces that are needed to create a story on our platform and invite audience members to come along and assemble their own stories. And at any point, the AI is sort of leveraging all the stories that have come before it and sort of says, hey, okay, I think I know where your story is heading. Um, why don't you try this scene or why don't you try this element or this line of dialogue from somebody else? Are they are they good storytellers? The artificial intelligence are are they still learning to become? I well, guess next J.R.R. Tolkien. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of the the story started off pretty crude, right? But but everybody's leveraging everybody else's contributions. You know, various people have are creative in different ways, right? So some people are really good dialogue. Some people have a few good jokes in them. Some people are really good at pacing or understand the sort of you know how to lay up. And a good action scene, right? And so different audience members were contributing different things that the system was seeing. Oh, okay, that's that's unique. Let me try that with the next story. Did they like it? And it constantly, these contributions get off, uh, you know, get sort of uh, voted up, we can say, almost by who, who ends up getting you, how they get used. Now, as writers, uh, we would say at times that sometimes uh, uh, too much editing too much of a, of a committee to help writing, uh, blandizes it, uh, takes it off the edge and all that. But Absolutely. in this case here with storytelling and with what you're trying to achieve with this, does the crowd improve it in a lot of ways? Well, we, we, we think, you know, traditionally there's been one story that's come out, right? A sort of um, the way I like to describe it is, you know, as a creator, you would hack a path through the forest. You would create a unique story and then you invite everybody else to follow you down that path right and the more people that you know sort of helped you make that path or sort of you know the the, the could ruin the experience well well what this experience does is it's an ai that understands okay this is the most traveled path but but it allows people to carve their own paths and at any point the system tries to sort of nudge you back onto the, the paths that it knows are good Mm-hmm. Um, some are some users are quite ambitious and they create their own unique path. But now all of a sudden the AI has two paths to choose from. Some people just create little, you know, change little jokes. So at any point you have big changes you can have in the story, or small little changes. You know, a lot of dialogue here, or a different scene, or a different way the shot was. So can the technology you're employing embrace even the most radical departure out of? Um out of a storyline, do you think? Is it, or does it like a little bit of a, like a small deviation from the mean here? And, and you know. Well, we, what we've been testing on is genre, right? Sort of, uh, we started with a horror story, group of kids, Cabin in the Woods, um, Killer on the Loose, right? And so, now, and we found that uh, there are a million ways to tell that story. And yet everybody sort of has a feel of, how that story should go. Mm-hmm. And so you you end up with lots of different versions of a similar experience. And absolutely, some are better than others. But but it's the ability to not have any of these stories necessarily be precious. 
so that you can you can be following somebody's story, but with just a few buttons, you're you're now experiencing something else, or you've changed that that scene, or you've changed that line of dialogue. And we've by doing so, we learn more about the types of stories you like and how you're similar to other people, uh, as well as understanding sort of what story elements work next to each other. Your background is in visual effects. Uh, you've also worked in gaming. How did this, I guess, combination of both the film industry and the gaming industry really influence your decision to move forward with Mashup? Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's interesting, right? It's sort of, I've always thought of myself as a storyteller. Um, and in video games, there is a big, uh, there's a constant struggle of how to inject more narrative into a game. You know, is it... Is it gameplay with sort of a story shoved on top, right? Or is it a story with a little, you know, a little bit of game mechanics? Um, and what this is is doing is sort of starting it from the other from the other side, right? Or sort of how do we make a game? You know, how do we take what's good about a game experience? We're sort of introducing puzzles and introducing uh, mechanics that bring you back and get you engaged, and um, but attaching it to linear storytelling. So, so basically building a simulator for story, a simulator for the movie that people can play with in lots of different ways and be entertained. What are you learning, Chris, about how innate we are as storytellers? Uh, I mean, I, I think there's, you know, we're still pretty early, right? Um, this field of creative AI, you know, we're, we're one of the earliest companies to be trying this, but but storytelling is you know it's a fundamental part of the human experience, right? And you know as we as we're exposed to more and more sort of large tentpole pictures in the movie theaters and uh, maybe disenfranchised with what we see on TV, you know this is a medium for to create you know hyper niched content stories that appeal to various you know, ethnicities or various age groups, depending on what the cast looks like, depending on what they're saying, the types of jokes are in the story, but still have it be the same story, just told in lots of different ways for different audience members. Like personalized to a certain degree. And I, exactly. I, I find it interesting though, because I think you look at the big studios, mention the tentpole pictures, and they are, despite, you know, maybe five 10 movies making, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars every year, it is a bit of a challenge to get people into the theaters. Do you see kind of that market opening up for more of this home entertainment? People like sitting back at home and, and, and you're finding a way to engage them in a way that's, I think, kind of unique. Definitely. I mean, that's that's the hope, right? Of, of uh, creating a medium where people are in the driver's seat much more and you know, especially you know, we're we're excited by franchises that already have fans. You see, so you you you're, you've already fallen in love with the characters. You've already fallen in love with a certain part of the story. Um, and now you want to experience it in 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 sort of this endless fashion, right? You sort of you want to, if you're a fan of Star Wars, you want to go back to Star Wars every night, right? Uh, and this is the, the sort of the technology can that can offer that that it that allows certain people to be creative and create whole new segments and other people just to sort of lean back and just, you know, get involved when they want to. So maybe clarify it for me. I mean, is there almost kind of a turnkey sort of solution here? If other people if they're, that have access to certain intellectual property want to, I guess, embed this technology within what they have access to, is that on the table in the future? 
that that's exactly what we're looking at now, right? We're sort of we've been we've been working as a lab the last few years of developing a language that describes narrative story, uh, building out proof of concepts, you know, trying them, you know, putting them up online, inviting audience members to come in. And just seeing what they do, see what their reactions are, see what their actions are, seeing what's the most engaging. Um, and yeah, we're sort of now talking to large IP owners, studios, you know, uh, anybody that has fans that uh, we can engage in this new way. I'm interested in a couple of other areas uh, that would relate to this. Um, and there are areas I think that you probably have to ethically in your own mind sort through all the time. The first being, of course, what do you do with, say, a storyteller that wants to create something that might be objectionable in a particular way? How do you, how, how does the technology either rein that person in or, or stop them at a particular stop sign and say, that's it, you can't go further? What, what's, what's the approach there? Well, there's, there's easy stuff to um, guard against. But obviously, you know, in the day, in the age of Facebook, right? We sort of we know that, you know, if people are anonymous, uh, if you don't have a clean record of where the data comes from, you know, things can just spell spread like wildfire, and you just take it as gospel that, like, oh, well, I saw it online; it must be true, right? And it's the same with with these kind of stories. They, but what we're most excited by is forming community around story, right? So, so you're not anonymous; we can track. Every line of dialogue, where did it come from? Who put it in? Who, where is it being used? So that we can see not only, like, oh, your contributions are currently being used in three thousand stories, or do you know that you're you're regarded as a really good with camera angle or pacing or those kind of things? Um, and so, 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 so the more we can form community around story, you know, the the more obvious it is that. If somebody's breaking the rules, well, then they they need to. Yeah, and then the the corollary of that is, of course, the the amount, the immense amount of data that now gets uh, acquired in the course of this. How do you then carry that forward, and and in a way ensure it's not being, say, improperly used down the line? Yeah, I mean, it's sort of there's there's a difference between personal data and story data. You know, sort of we're interested in your tastes in story um you know we haven't really experienced anybody being scared of that data coming out mm. right um you know obviously we have a lot of users that that tell rather personal versions of stories on a platform you know sort of uh potentially recreating scenes, you know, the things that they've gone through or lines of dialogue they've had with their best friends or those kind of things. Um, but it, it, you know, they, everybody knows that we're, we're contributing into this one pool of what, what the story world is all about, right? So there's, we have to assume that um, there's nothing about this that's supposed to be private. This, you know, these are, collective stories just that you know you, you might overhear somebody talking telling a story to somebody else on the bus mm -hmm. you know the, the, a story gets heard a story a story gets retold in a different way to someone else yeah and it's that constant retelling of a story in a new voice that we're excited by but it strikes me that this medium if you want to call it that um this form of creation 
would also lend itself to something like memoir. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, sort of there's um, when the system gets better, right? Uh, the, the goal is to democratize storytelling, right? In, in a longer term. But that's, you know, we're years away from that. But the having a system that constantly tries to guess where you could be going with your individual story and sort of says, oh, okay, well, I know 10,000 other stories that start off this way. You know, <laughs> you know, should the next thing that happened is this? And it's, it's trying to feed you lines and feed you scenes and feed you contributions from other members um, so that anybody can create their version, right? And um, and when we when we talk about stories, you know, stories can be broad, you know, a hero's journey, but also could be, you know, a bullying episode or Mean Girls or you know, sort of uh, more personal stories. Well, Chris, fascinating stuff that you're working on, and appreciate you joining us today on the show. Absolutely fantastic! Happy to be here. That's Chris Schilholm. He is a co-founder and chief operating officer at Mashup Machine Incorporated, and. Thank you for listening to BIV today. Tell your friends to subscribe to us. Leave five stars, of course, at iTunes. Meanwhile, you can find our stories in print and at BIV.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>